Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, a higher plane of enlightenment. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville, 95.3 FM. Or you can all listen streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Namaste. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. You know, West Michigan does have a Ganges River, don't we? Yeah, we do, actually. So uh, what I want you guys to do is, when my time comes, light my corpse up down <laughs> down in the couple <laughs> counties below. Not and a problem. be off on a raft, or let the crocs take me. Could we could we send you off and and like do the flaming arrow yeah. onto the raft? On my so way to Valhalla. Kind of, uh, nice. Uh, so coming up on this episode is the second part of our series on Buddhism. Uh, in our first part, we looked at well some of the more attractive elements of Buddhism, I suppose. That's right. We looked at the earliest forms of Buddhism, some of the early texts of the Pali Canon, and found a vision of Buddhism that is fits remarkably well with a naturalistic worldview. It's almost humanistic. That's right. A Buddha who doesn't declare to be a god in any sort of way. An emphasis on truth that focuses on experience rather than believing in texts or doctrines or the authority of some teacher. Uh, As well as an approach to suffering that's very practical that focuses on changing your perspective rather than gaining access to some paradise in a future life. But of course, that's not the whole picture of Buddhism. No, it's not the whole picture of Buddhism. As we will see in the following episode, Buddhism very quickly degraded from this rather empirical style of religion to one steeped in dogma, ritual, and abject mysticism. Just as nutty as any other world religion. Yep. Having established that early Buddhism has many beliefs about the world which fit well with a naturalistic worldview, I think the following question is, the Buddha's recommendation then on how one should live their life, what follows from this view of the world? Is there any kind of validity to that? And that's a, that's a much more murky question. Today we're going to return to where we left off in the last episode, and that is the fourth noble truth, the idea of this noble eightfold path which forms the basis of Buddhist orthopraxy. That means they straighten their teeth. Have I been wrong in all this time? Orthopraxy. No. By orthopraxy, I mean how one follows a religion. Orthodoxy being the the beliefs of the religion. Orthopraxy meaning the practice. Praxis refers to actions then. Yes. Mm. So this is a system of practices, philosophical beliefs, and a set of ethical precepts. The Eightfold Path, like many things in Buddhism, it subdivides into three different categories. Buddhism is often called a religion of lists, Mm -hmm. and anybody who's began to study it gets an appreciation of that. There's five precepts, four noble truths, the Eightfold Path. You could just keep on going on and on. But the Eightfold Path is broken into three parts. Uh, Those three parts are wisdom, virtue, 
and mental discipline. And the idea is that a ethical life, a skillful life, is going to have to have all those three areas in, in balance with one another. So the the parts of the Eightfold Path that deal with wisdom, right view and right intention, um, just have to do with seeing in one's personal life aspects of the Four Noble Truths, so dukkha, the cause of dukkha, all those things we talked about last time, mm-hmm. seeing these in, in your day-to-day experience. Right intention, the second part of the Eightfold Path, has very much the same idea. Uh, you should be resolved to find freedom from ill will, find freedom from suffering, uh, to become harmless. Then there are parts of the Eightfold Path that focus on your ethical life. What are the behaviors that you should be focusing on? So these would be right speech, so refraining from lying, refraining from divisive or abusive speech, not just engaging in idle gossip, control over your speech and how you talk. Are you listening to this, Luke? Mm-hmm. R- right speech, I think, seems like a, a one that you could maybe focus on. What are you trying to say? Nothing, nothing. I'm just saying. I have uh, on right speech, left speech. What does that mean? I, I, I don't know. I'll leave that to the listeners to uh, to decide. Is my speech any more incorrect than anybody else's? The fourth one is right livelihood, and this just means that you have a job, a uh, means of making money that is consistent with your ethics. So if a part of the Buddhist ethic is to do no harm, then people shouldn't earn money from lying and cheating other people. They shouldn't earn money from killing animals or making weapons, that sort of you thing. You hear that, assassins who are listening? This is not right. Then there is right action, basic things like don't steal, don't take the life of any sentient being, refrain from abusive abusive sexual acts, refrain from false or malicious speech, uh, don't take any alcohol or mind-dulling intoxicants. Wow, where's where's the fun? Yeah, I know the fifth one, uh, the fifth of the precepts is the one that I certainly can't get behind. Yeah. Does um, that include self-abusive sexual acts? Is that <laughs> is that linked in there? They've just you've just lost like all your listeners from that one. <laughs> yeah. But what I'm most interested in for this episode are these final uh, the final part of the eightfold path. No matter what your moral worldview is as a humanist, uh, assuming most people are listening are humanists. It's going to be part of most ethical systems that there's going to be an intellectual, a philosophical component, and you're expected then to live on those things. So there's going to be a behavioral component. What good is morality if you don't actually live by it? I think what's very different about the Eightfold Path is the idea that just as important is this aspect of mental discipline. Having a certain degree of control over one's mental life, investigating deeply into your moment-to-moment conscious experience – is seen as an essential element to walking the Buddhist path. The final part of the Eightfold Path is then two things, right mindfulness and right concentration. Sorry, what was that? I wasn't paying attention. Uh Mindfulness and concentration are broadly the major approaches to Buddhist meditation. Mm -hmm. The practice of concentration is developing some sort of meditative absorption. This is what we would more think of like trance-like states. Um, the kind of meditation that that really turns off skeptics and secular humanists. It, it begins with 
having some particular focus, one one thing, maybe your breath. Oh. Breath is a pretty common thing or, oh. or a mantra, something that you focus on to the exclusion of everything else. Mm-hmm. And you try to Does then – count? Because I can go for hours <laughs> staring at yeah. the lights inside I've got the magic down. box. <laughs> right. And the idea is that as one uh, as one does this, one delves into these deeper and deeper levels of meditation. Um, this this is quite frankly where it gets very esoteric. It gets very mystical. There's talk of these jhanas, these these different levels, stages of meditation you can enter into, where progressively more and more things from your everyday experience start to drop away, and and you're you know, eventually reach the point of emptiness. So that's the type that gets, as I said, very esoteric, very mystical. And in fact, many of these really have still a lot in common with those that were practiced by the Hindu sages. Now, the Buddha found that these these practices alone were not enough. They didn't do the trick. That was part of the reason why he rejected them. And so if there's a new element to the Buddhist style of meditation, it's in this this kind that's called mindfulness the mindfulness meditation. And what mindfulness is, it's trying to keep a moment-to-moment awareness on pretty much every aspect of experience. So in the uh, in the Buddha's sermon on mindfulness, um, he begins with walking through different areas. You, you pay attention to your body, all the sensations and feelings in your body. You pay attention to your emotions, to your thoughts. You pay attention to what you hear. Every part of your experience, you try to be as aware of it as possible and just watch these things going on. So it's kind of the opposite of the other one where you're losing everything. Everything's dropping away. Here you are focusing on everything that's there. Um, You you do it in chunks, sort of. I mean, there's different practices and there's different techniques. There's Mm -hmm. a wide variety of techniques that they employ. Sometimes it might be, okay, well, we're just going to do mindfulness of the body first. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to do mindfulness of the thoughts. But you're right. It's not supposed to be excluding out anything necessarily. And the goal is not some sort of trance-like state. It's careful attention to just what is going on in your immediate experience at that moment. And this is a lot more appealing to me personally and I think to other humanists out there who like experiencing the world. I don't want to lose the sensations around me. I don't want to lose my own thought process and and that sort of thing. I want to understand right. it more fully. Mm-hmm. Although I don't meditate, and that's right. But no, you're you're absolutely right. You can see that this is a practice that can be completely religion free. Right. Uh, and I think that's often when we we will be talking about this in a moment. But when meditation is then used in a secular therapeutic context, quite often. Many of them use this this type of approach uh, mm-hmm. because it doesn't require any metaphysical beliefs. It doesn't require any spirituality at all. It's just looking, just watching your experience. Right. Observation. Now, the spiritual goal in Buddhism has to do with that thing, of course, that we talked about last week. The idea that we have these habitual patterns of thought and behavior that cause us to suffer. And it's not until we're able to let go of our craving and our clinging and our aversion to things that we're ever going to find any release from that. So ordinarily, we act in very impulsive ways. You know, you see the coolest gadget at the store uh, and you know you can't afford it, but you put it on the credit card. Or we act in very habitual ways, usually. We overeat, 
we turn to drugs, we drink alcohol when we're upset or disappointed or sad with our lives. We are also ordinarily very self-absorbed. And it doesn't matter if you are, you know, constantly building up your own ego or tearing yourself down inside to the Buddhists that's, that's equally narcissistic. It leads you into false evaluations of yourself and it causes you to selfishly ignore the needs of others. But the idea of mindfulness is, is that if you are aware then of your moment-to-moment -moment experience, you can be calm, you can be less reactive when those situations come up. If you watch your experience dispassionately and you're not encouraging anything and you're not suppressing anything either, then you can learn those conditions that will do harm to yourself or others. And then, as the Buddhists say, you can let go. That is, when the thought or the impulse arises, you can just watch it while it persists without identifying with it or acting on it, and eventually it will just go away. So you can see this, this mental discipline part is absolutely essential in Buddhist ethics. The wisdom and the virtue parts of the Eightfold Path, they can't make a difference in someone's life uh, until they, they bring this knowledge into their moment-to-moment -moment experience. So that's kind of the idea of where mindfulness fits in with the overall Buddhist project. As I mentioned in the last episode, I, I do meditate, uh, and I wanted to talk about my personal experience doing this to, to give an idea of how, how this is supposed to work. What exactly do you do when you're meditating, and are there any kind of tangible benefits that actually come out of this practice? Mm -hmm. uh, and then we'll turn, turn a more critical eye on it and see, you know, is there any science to back this stuff up? Well, let me explain the process first. The type of meditation I tried is sometimes called uh, vipassana or also called insight meditation. There is a little bit of a concentration element to it. Oftentimes you start off um, with some particular focus that you use as a fixed reference. Are you sitting in the lotus position or something? Uh, I, I certainly couldn't manage to make it into that. <laughs> He's, he's got a little bench thing. Uh, yes, I do. I, I had a little sitting bench that I oh, used. Okay. Oh, that's um, nice. That basically, yeah, the whole point of the posture is so that you can, your body can remain relaxed enough so that your muscles aren't cramping up uh, during the meditation, but that you're uh, you're alert enough that you're not going to just pass out and fall asleep doing this. Do you have somebody enforcing that with a bamboo rod? Uh, no, no being hit by sticks or anything like that. I know a professor is on a, went to Japan and was on a three-day like weekend retreat, and the, she felt she was a particular target of the bamboo stick wielding guy who would <laughs> oh, whack really? her, thinking that she was slumping forward or tired or whatever like that. He whacked her a lot. See, this Zen is, has a very martial attitude towards its its discipline. This is where the the Christianity of my youth trumps Buddhism because you could sit in church and sleep the whole time <laughs> with with belief and doctrines. It's possible just to tune out and say whatever. And yeah, like that. exactly. They don't whack you. It was great. Yeah, uh, meditating can be a, a bit more intense than prayer. Oftentimes, you'd start off with a focus uh, like your breath. And the point of the breath really is, is to give you some sort of uh, fixed reference point. So if you're trying to pay close attention to, you know, your inhalation and your exhalation and just watch that, just watch it, not control it not try to alter it in any sort of way, just just witness it happening naturally and kind of watch the changes as it goes by. What that does then is that when you do inevitably get distracted, and you will, 
gives you kind of a reference point to know that you've been distracted. Suddenly you realize, hey, I'm not focusing on my breath anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about – I'm making a to-do list in my mind. I'm thinking about some sort of fight or argument I got into last week, that sort of thing. The the idea of, of having some sort of focus then is to realize when you've been distracted from it. This is meant to just teach a, a bit of stability in, in the practice as it begins because anybody who starts off meditating is going to realize your your mind is just darting all over the place. And so it helps then to get a little bit of training being able to keep your focus somewhere. We learned that in basic acting in college to have yeah. an object to focus on and totally. uh, you know calm, mm-hmm. the, calm the mind so you can uh, be open to the scene. And... Right, 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 which is – Stella! Yeah. <laughs> But when I was doing this pretty regularly, this would be you know, 20 minutes twice a day I would do this, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening. And you do over time, you get more focused. Those distractions don't happen as frequently. Mm. Sort of the, the result is really this kind of bizarre shift in perspective is the only way I can articulate it. At some point, you know, your thoughts that you're getting distracted by you, you find yourself as if you're like a step back away from them, watching them happen. It's, I mean, again, this is why it's really hard to talk about meditation is mm-hmm. because... It sounds crazy? Uh, certainly. Okay. No judgment. I, I know you're judging me. I know bit. you're judging me. A little bit. I, just, I wish you were open-minded. The, the experience is that you are, you are having your thoughts, you don't experience them as you thinking them anymore, if that makes sense. They, they turn into... Just another stimulus. The the same the same way that you hear sounds from cars outside going by, uh, or you hear the ticking of a clock, your thoughts almost take on that aspect as well. So some distraction will come up, and your mind will be chattering, and um, you know you don't feel like you're directing those thoughts at all. They kind of they kind of just bubble up and do their own thing, and then they they drop away. And you apply this to everything. You you pay more attention to the way your body feels, to everything that you're hearing around you. And and eventually you, what you're doing is you're developing this, this ability to kind of stand apart from your experience and to watch it. And so they teach you in mindfulness then what you are supposed to do is you are not supposed to then judge your your thoughts that are coming up. You're not supposed to react in any sort of way to what's going on. Um, you're supposed to just um, watch them dispassionately, kind of detached. I mean, one of the direct consequences of this is, of course, you you feel very calm. If if you're doing it, of course, sometimes when you're getting distracted, it, it can be sheer madness. Uh, but it can, when it's when it's going well, it can have a very very soothing, very calming effect that lasts for quite a while. Even when you're uh, go back to your daily routines, you tend to do it with a, a little bit more presence. And and that seemed in and of itself just interesting to me. It was very interesting and curious to watch the types of things that my mind's my mind was distracted by, because this practice is supposed to leak into everyday life. It's not just something you do when you're meditating. You are supposed to then use that to be more mindful of everything that mm-hmm. you do. And so it would be interesting to you know watch then. Like one of the observations was I, I realized I was I was taking a shower and I wasn't enjoying the shower at all. I was, you know, fighting little arguments in my head or I was noticing more how the things that people were saying to me were stressing me out. You know, usually in my in my normal everyday to experience experience, I don't reflect on these things all that much. I may not even notice when they're happening after having meditated for a while. 
you start noticing the circumstances that surround all of this more. So when you're getting upset, I start noticing much more my heart beating. Uh, yeah, I start noticing, you know, signs of physical tension. My shoulders are tightening up and everything you're else like that. more in tune with your body. Yeah. yeah. You start getting, getting an inkling from that, you know, why they do this practice. Uh, is to cue you into the to the normal things that are going on that you that you don't usually notice. I noticed that this this training in mindfulness helped me watch some of how my emotions were coloring things. I remember very distinctly several events. Most of these have to do with my wife, and you know, just being in a marriage. Um, but a normal situation that I might get into with my wife is where. You know, this would happen a lot where we would get in an argument about something. She was probably right, but I'm a better arguer. <laughs> I could talk my way, you know, I could talk my way out of a situation and, she and turn it against her. <laughs> but when paying more attention to these things, when trying to be mindful of them, you know, again, you start noticing physically, you know, you're tightening up. You start noticing that you're, you're breathing faster. Your, your heart's beating more. There's some part of you that is watching you in this argument. There's some part of you that jumps out and goes, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know, she's actually right. And and I don't want to admit it. When I was more aware of what was going on, it was much, much easier than to just be like, OK, calm down. You know, we should either talk about this later when my mind is more in its right place or even there were a few instances where I really did was able to just drop it right then and there and say, you know what? You're right. I'm completely wrong about this. <laughs> so wait, meditation uh, made you less effective in arguments with your spouse? What good is it then? Exactly. <laughs> so if you're the Dalai Lama and your wife is the Chinese government, then <laughs> he should just give up and say, oh, okay, just take it. Yeah, you've got a point, China. Well, I wasn't saying the point of meditation was to cave in an argument when you're right. Sounds like it. It did seem related to the amount of time that I was spending meditating. It was actually – it was easier easier to distance myself from these situations when I had been doing that practice. We talked about this rather strange idea last week, the idea that the Buddha, after his supposed enlightenment, he feels pain and all this stuff, but he doesn't suffer from it. Right. When I first heard that, that seemed to me as, you know, pretty contradictory. You know, okay, so we're going to be splitting hairs here between pain and suffering. What, what is that supposed to mean? It sounds kind of mystical. One of the more intriguing parts of, of my, my experience with meditation was a moment where that kind of actually made sense. The, the situation was I was at this, this Buddhist sangha that um, my, my friend from the Free Thought Association brought me to, and we had to sit in meditation for an hour and 15 minutes which I'd never done before. And it was very intense. Uh, and as I was doing this, I was developing a lot of back pain. You're trying to sit in one posture for, for that long of a time. You need to do more yoga. Yes. Mm. And so I'm, I'm spending all this time thinking about, oh my gosh, this is really hurting. Is this normal for other people? Or is this something wrong with me? When is this session going to be over? I didn't have a watch. I had no clue. You know, how long has it been? Maybe I need to get up. Maybe I need to leave the room. You know, what you're supposed to do is just watch these things. Don't judge them in any sort of way. Just focus in on them. I tried to do this. I tried to focus in on the pain and just watch it and not judge it. After a while, this weird kind of mental shift happened where I felt the exact same physical tightness and everything else in my back. I was feeling it, but it didn't 
it didn't bother me anymore if that if that makes any sense it was just mm. something else that was going on it was it was like uh again it was like hearing a sound it was like thinking a thought a lot of the suffering was due to the chattering the trying to find it and when you when you focused on the pain uh the pain was then just just an experience it was just like anything else and i've heard people uh use this before trying to uh trying to get relief from things like migraine headaches and uh, uh muscle soreness and other kind of chronic pain uh try to use this practice in, in this way mm. to kind of uh dull the suffering a bit that comes from it it was a, it was a bizarre experience for me because it was like okay here was this weird kind of mystical sounding thing that the meditators were talking about but now i could match it up with an actual experience that i was having while the language wasn't a perfect fit to the experience there did seem to be something that was going on here and to some degree once you got good at this you could even within a certain range of experiences you could even just turn it on or off so if it's really cold outside you could say okay i'll be a little bit more mindful of this and not say oh how how cold it is and and dwell on how uncomfortable you are just kind of embrace the cold just feel it for what it is this is what it's like to be cold everybody else is shivering and and is bothered by this this is an experience incidentally that we have a lot in west michigan mm-hmm. everybody else is bitching about how cold it is and you're just there experiencing it do you ever think it would be non-adaptive to not attend to bodily sensations and react to them? Good point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is, uh, sometimes when, I w- when we were doing our meditation group, I was also reading a lot of evolutionary psychology where, you know, even back to Darwin's day where he talked about emotions as signals that they're, mm-hmm. they've adapted to sure. tell you something. You know, like if you're anxious or depressed about something uh, or, you know, like uh, future planning, you're worried about the future, your mind, according to the mindfulness thing that you should, you know, gently return right. your mind to the present. What if the... Um, Future wandering is your brain adapted to saying you need to do prepare for things or that the, that that's there for a reason mm-hmm. rather than having a bemused thing like, oh, that's what minds do. Minds wander into the future and get anxious. But what if there's an adaptive reason why it's doing that? Right. Yes. Just like shivering. I or mean, your there, body There's a real responses. reason for, for shivering. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like trying to be mindful of your experience means ignoring problems in your life. You don't like throw your day planner away and uh, or refuse to call a dentist when your tooth is hurting or something like that. It's it's just it's more like not letting stressful situations get the best of you. If you're getting anxious because you're there's a long line at the post office or you're getting angry at a friend or a relative or or something and, and you're just you know, you're just hot with rage. The fight or flight response that kicks in at that moment, that might have been adaptive back and the savannas of Africa when we were being chased by tigers. That doesn't mean that it's the best thing for us right now. Today in the modern world, that's those are the things that can cause people to burn bridges or, you know, give people heart attacks. So just because something exists for some Darwinian purpose doesn't mean that it's always going to be beneficial for you. I'm just saying that many people from the West, their reaction to the reaction is often that it's a passive sort of philosophy that one leads to that leads to stoic acceptance. Whereas we've been enculturated mm-hmm. to do stuff. You're an individual. Go out there and you know change stuff. Where I yeah. think a lot of when they are a lot of Westerners' reaction to Eastern thought and and in Buddhism is that it's it leads to sort of passive acceptance of things. When it I, shouldn't. I think that was your, your critique last yeah, week. Yeah, it was. And, and we didn't get into it on, on last week's episode. But this, this idea that, you know, suffering comes, suffering goes, well, that's 
all well and good, but it, it to me the problem that it leads to is where do you get your impetus to try to change things, mm-hmm. not only for yourself but for the rest of the world. That's a big part of my humanistic values is that we want to minimize suffering for everyone. Don't just do something and sit there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and that's that's an unappealing aspect of, of Buddhism yeah, for me. I think that's a serious problem in Buddhism. And for example, to highlight that, um, some may be familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen monk. He started this movement called Engaged Buddhism. Right. And the idea was it was really taking that critique to heart saying, okay, well – you have to go beyond teaching people mental disciplines to free them from suffering. You actually need to get in there and make a difference in, the, in their material world. You need to make sure that they're getting basic considerations of human welfare, social mobility, political stability, all these other things that activism needs to be part of the Buddhist path. Now, the fact that he had to start this movement shows you something about the mentality that right. he was trying to overcome. And in fact, one of the two sanghas that I attended regularly was a Vietnamese sangha, and that issue came up. Somebody brought up the idea of uh, engaged Buddhism, mm-hmm. and the monk there, Tai Tue, just dismissed it. He thought it was a ridiculous idea. He, he, In fact, he said, until you reach a certain level of enlightenment, you can't help others. Why? Because it will be only out of your ego. Right. You'll be trying to do all these activist stuff so everybody else will look at you and so you can say, oh, I'm a wonderful person. I help other people out. And he's like, if you haven't mastered your own selfishness, you're only going to acquire more bad karma and all this. And yeah, I had the exact same reaction. The utilitarian in me snapped and was like, right. who, who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the consequences here are what matters. It just seemed to me like this ridiculous stuff that you sometimes get in in Christianity, like something has – or Kantian ethics. Something has to be 100 percent altruistic, you know, no self-concern at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if it isn't, it's it's bad. Well, and of course there are many different kinds of Buddhism and we'll talk about that more on the next episode too. But I just think what would the world be like if everyone had this philosophy of I have to achieve my own enlightenment right. before I can help anyone else and that's not that's not how it yeah. works and no, it shouldn't be how it works. that you'd have to that you could engage in in action and altruism while still recognizing by distancing yourself that oh this is I'm doing this it made me feel good. I got a little right. rush of dopamine. Yeah. That's egoistic. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to continue to help people, but keep an eye on that. I mean, you could just apply the same Buddhist techniques sure. to your own selfishness by saying that's what minds do. They're selfish and still... Right. I don't think there's action. any... There's no, like, barrier here to helping people in the world. And, in fact, if you look at, the, you know, one-third of that eightfold path are ethical obligations mm-hmm. that involve others. Sure. So ethics is always seen as being an important practice, but it has – yes, you're right. It's Traditionally, it's been very self-focused. No, I mean that's present – I don't want to crack on Eastern, but that's present in Christianity too where people get so wrapped up with the vertical religion with God and stuff that they mm-hmm. ignore the horizontal religion, you know, the whole part mm-hmm. with the fellow man. Right. In fact, when you look at like – I just was writing on this the other night. When you look at like studies of uh, – where they analyze those uh, types of religiosity, they're entirely independent. That is, to the extent that somebody's like into their religious concepts, doctrines, praying, God, 
is entirely independent about whether they actually engage in any of the social stuff of loving fellow men and that crap. And I would argue that it acts as a rationalization to that. If to, to mm-hmm. think yeah, that you definitely. want to go and and meditate on the mountaintop, you think you're making progress. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't result in any meaningful change for anybody else, that's you're worse off than you would have been well, if you, you had been help next spiritual. time around, right? Yeah, or, or reincarnation that, well, next no, time. You're, and you're absolutely right. As we'll we'll see with the Mahayana when we we talk about this next week. But this idea of the Bodhisattva, uh, the idea is that somebody does not seek enlightenment for their own sake; they seek it for the sake of others. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like something that could lead to then a lot of progressive activism, yeah. right? In some cases, it does. Some of the ways you accumulate merit is by helping others. But quite often, what it results in is that people think by then meditating and sitting in a room all alone it is they are helping others yeah. they yeah. are they are going to get enlightened so that then they'll be in the position where they can sh- share their their merit with other people it does sometimes lead to this kind of um navel gazing mm-hmm. yeah quite frankly I think it, this kind of makes sense historically when you look at the Buddhist situation right because they were all they were right. all leaving society in, in a sense, the, the activism that they were engaged in at the time was if you want freedom from the oppression of the caste system, mm-hmm. you leave society and go off into the wilderness. And so they were actually challenging the society and trying to do make people's lives better, but it was by renouncing it, by stepping outside mm-hmm. of society. But this gets locked in as the idea, well, this is what the Buddha desired. This is how he did it. This is the way we should practice it today. And yeah, it can result in not taking proactive steps. It's a pretty limited approach yeah. to, to social change. Yeah. Well, that's one reason why I'm a humanist and not a Buddhist. But as a humanist, I want to investigate more closely what it means to be human. I want to live a more happier life. I want to be more compassionate towards other people. Training. So if there's a way to train the mind that will help with that, I'd like to know how. So for me, when I was in the Sangha and I was, you know, learning to distance myself from my back pain, I wasn't fooling myself into thinking that I had some profound glimpse of enlightenment or anything. But I did think, well, here's here's an interesting mental trick that I just played. And it actually really seemed to help with my pain. We already know of a lot of mental tricks that we can do. For example, chunking, trying to remember numbers. Instead of 21356, say 21356, that kind of mental trick will help you to remember a longer string of numbers. Or we know phone numbers, uh, mnemonic devices, uh, memory techniques that are used to help you to remember things. We already know the existence of several little mental tricks we can play with our consciousness to get some sort of desired effect. Having this experience in meditation was saying, well, are there other tricks out there like this? Uh, I don't have to believe any of the Buddhist worldview to think that it might be that some of these people spending a lot of time in the woods, staring, you know, looking into their own minds and experience, might have accidentally stumbled on some techniques for actually achieving results. And I wanted to know if if that was the case. Also, part of my interest was this seemed like just another form of metacognition, much like uh, like kind of the missing the missing aspect of critical thinking that we aren't taught. When you're taught to think critically, you're taught to uh, analyze your own thoughts, to be aware of your thinking while you are thinking, and and to take a process that is oftentimes unconscious and make it conscious. Deliberately evaluate the quality of your own thought. What is not taught 
in critical thinking is to pay attention to the all the other things surrounding thought. So your emotional reactions, how do your emotions condition your thought? We know now that we aren't these perfectly rational beings. Uh, we know now that our emotions can have a, a huge effect on how we come to understand our world. So is there any sort of way to be more critical and pay more attention to that? So if, and I realize this is a big if, but if this kind of mental training really can make you happier, if it can make you more compassionate, if it can help you to think more critically, then I think this is something humanists should explore and not just reject out of hand because it has a few associations with Eastern mysticism. Every skeptic has something that uh, they're interested in that might be kind of questionable or a little bit fringe. And so I have to honestly reflect on, you know, what, what good is this? What good is my personal anecdotal evidence? Is this actually real? I mean, the, the same cognitive biases that operate on everybody operate on me. It's quite possible that I'm counting the hits. I'm pay, paying attention to mm -hmm. all the times that what I think should follow from meditation actually does follow. Right. And I'm not paying attention to all those times where, where it didn't work, where I was just as stressed out, where I was just as frush, frustrated and, and reactive. To be a consistent skeptic then – we want to turn to the scientific literature and see, is, is there any kind of empirical basis for this? I hold open the possibility that maybe meditation really does have some real effects that would be positive and beneficial to people. Uh, however, I don't buy into the Buddhist notion that you could somehow purge all of your suffering this mm -hmm. way. Right. I mean, the, the extreme form where uh, you can completely eradicate the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion just by conscious introspection into your life. To me, on its surface, it's ridiculous. First of all, we know that introspection, there's very little we can access of our, of our actual thought process just through introspection alone. A lot of that is unconscious, and th so there's, there's, that's not even plausible. I only hold out the hope that maybe you can manage some of your emotional reactions to things. You might manage some of your suffering. So the third noble truth, in other words, to me, enlightenment, nirvana, isn't even an option. Right. But might meditation have some therapeutic effects? That's the question. So for that, we have a special edition of God Thinks Like You, or in this case, Buddha Thinks Like You. Student must learn to think like Buddha, not make Buddha think like student. Grasshopper. When you're talking about shifting to like treatments or uh, practices that are that work or don't work, the the, the qualification is always compared to what, right? You right. know, so everyone's familiar probably with the like placebo effect and, and yeah. things. When they say mindfulness works for depression, that the question is, you know, compared to what and what about it is the component that's supposed to do the working? Is it just Anybody who goes into any type of program, who's willing to change, who makes an effort to change, mm -hmm. who, you know, who spends time and money doing that, almost any practice would result in some change. We right. fluctuate over time anyway, which is, I guess, one of the Buddhist principles is our nothing our is mood, permanent. Right? Our moods and feelings go up and down. How do we know what you know to, to what to tie it to? The change, mm -hmm. the cause of. But uh, there's been research done by by a cruise of people who want to establish mindfulness as a type of therapy for disorders like anxiety or depression. Mm -hmm. And they've even tried to integrate it with cognitive therapy, which is the dominant 
paradigm, what most people are probably familiar with, cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, is a reaction against some of the more, you know, non-scientific forms that came before it, where cognitive therapy suggests that your mental problems or your uh, uh, negative thoughts are caused by distortions in reality. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that you can correct them and think rationally, that you will be more healthy and you know, less unhappy. In psychology in general, a lot of the therapeutic techniques in psychoanalysis and several different areas um, very seldom ever get results. But cognitive behavioral therapy in general has seemed to be one of those areas that that gets a lot of results over others. Yeah, I would qualify what you said by it's not that they don't get results. It's just that it's hard to distinguish what results they get from what is, you know, like with the humanistic therapies back in the 60s, there's a lot of far out stuff like primal scream and you know, and and, right. and rebirthing therapy. Many people come out of that saying, wow, it really helped me. But as we know, when we've talked about like woo things, what about it? Was it just their motivation? Was it uh, yeah. any type of treatment? So what you're correct in saying is that cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the few that's established itself as being above other mm-hmm. types of treatment, you know, above the placebo effect, above the expectation of change. That is when it's been done head to head in horse races with other comparable therapies, especially for things like anxiety disorders or mm-hmm. depression, cognitive therapy has kicked some butt. Does it work more effectively than drugs? Uh, well, if for if things like antidepressants, um, that there's a debate regarding that. There is no consensus, but what it seems to be is that medication often works very quickly for depression, more so than cognitive therapy, which right. would stand a reason well, because yeah, you have course. to learn, you know, how to do it. But as far as preventing relapses of depression, which it seems that that's where any treatment effect is. That is, you can make somebody less depressed, but how long will they stay that way or will mm-hmm. they have another episode? Right. It seems in that regard that cognitive therapy is better, again, oh. which would stand to reason because if you stop taking your medication and that's the only treatment you've received... So maybe a combination of the two would right. be really So effective, many people advocate right? that you okay. take meds for a quick, uh, immediate effect, particularly for the severe depressions where you can't even organize your... you know, If you right. can't even concentrate on what the therapist is saying then you need to see a psychiatrist or a medical doctor to get a prescription. Sure. But for in terms of long, you know, planning like long term and preventing relapses, uh, cognitive therapy appears to have an edge because you are, you know, making some long term changes or mm-hmm. recognizing, okay, I'm starting to become depressed again or here's what I can do to mm-hmm. do that. Right. What it is that's about cognitive therapy though that seems to be the, the component that works is they've said that it's because you're challenging negative thought patterns and that, that that's what puts somebody at risk for depression or anxiety is that you are distorted in your thinking. You mean like you in know? the secret where you just get rid of all <laughs> negative thoughts and if you well, don't want to be fat, you get away from oh thoughts of fat and fat people? A lot and- of people People think that it's positive thinking, but what it actually is is accurate thinking. Right. A cognitive therapist isn't saying that the glass is half full. A cognitive therapist is saying that it's four ounces of water in an eight-ounce glass. There's fifty percent. Right. Yeah. So so that it's not everything is going to turn up roses and life's a bowl of cherries. It's simply okay. Here's be realistic as possible to sure. the extent that you can see reality. You're avoiding distorted thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want delusions one way or the other. Like oh. I'm I'm okay. You're okay. Delusions, and you don't want delusions saying, "Oh, I'm this terrible mess." If they're not accurate, right? The fathers of cognitive therapy are Aaron Beck and uh, Albert Ellis. He calls it rational. His version, rationally emotive behavior therapy, but they're very similar. They've actually said that positive thinking put, can put you at risk for more problems because you're not preparing for things that right. I need to do. If you go around mm-hmm, right. thinking I'm God and I don't need to study or I, you know, I'm I'm right all the time. That's that's just as 
dysfunctional as mm-hmm. as being the negative and I'm I'm crap and I can't do anything right. Right. So the interesting thing is that CBT gets empirical results, but some are arguing that there's actually something wrong with the theory behind it. Yeah. When you break it down, you have to test, what, is it working because of the components that it says it works? Because like cognitive behavioral therapy, the name implies you have a behavioral component. That mm-hmm. is, let's say you're depressed. If you go into a CBT therapist, they will not only work with you on restructuring your negative thoughts, but they're also going to do things like what's called behavioral activation. That is, you know, when you're depressed – you want to stay in bed all day or you you know burn your bridges with friends or you're cranky or whatever that the behavioral component involves making actual changes in your lifestyle structure your activities if you're more depressed in the morning than at night here's things you need to do to you know get out of bed have a day plan mm-hmm. you know risky things avoid people that that make you you know avoid drinking or something like that so there's a behavioral activation component the problem is is that when you do a study that's called unpacking where you compare just the behavioral part to like just the cognitive part or just the or a combination of the two, you actually find that the behavioral components sometimes are equally effective to the cognitive component. Or the other component is simply the process of distancing yourself from your thoughts in order to challenge them. That is, this is called from the cognitive point of view, decentering. Right. And this is where the overlap goes with mindfulness therapy, and that is, if you think about it this way, it makes sense. In order to challenge my thoughts and say, okay, I was, you know, irrational. When Jeremy said, good morning, he seemed cranky. Maybe it wasn't me that he hates. Maybe he's just cranky. In order to do that and and separate out the the good thoughts from the bad thoughts or the correct ones from the incorrect ones, I have to recognize that thoughts are not me and become distant from them or or decenter myself from I am my emotions. That sounds a lot like mindfulness therapy. In fact, what a lot of the mindfulness People argue is that what they want to do is to have that non-judgmental thing like you were just talking about, that you recognize that emotions come and go. It's not you. Your ego is not bound to those emotions. Some had the theory then that this this decentering phenomenon might be explaining kind of the anomalies in the data. If the goal was to get rid of unrealistic thoughts, they realized some people were having relief from their symptoms. They were self-reporting that they could watch their ideas, they could identify patterns of thought that were unrealistic, patterns of thought that were self-defeating, but they ne- they didn't report that they were able to successfully replace them by establishing better thought patterns. Which is what should happen theoretically if cognitive therapy works because of the way it says it does. You should get better to the extent that you correct negative thoughts. Right. The problem is, is that when you examine that, the people's progress in therapy is not linked to correcting those thoughts. Mm. Which, and they, they get better, right. but it's not because of linked in any way to, to the correcting negative thoughts and turning them into realistic thoughts, which begs the question, why does it work then? Right, right. Am I correct in saying that it, it does appear to be linked to monitoring those thoughts? That's one of the theories now is, is, that, uh, is that the common component might be the process involved in order to get to challenging those thoughts is monitoring them to begin with. And that's where mindfulness comes in because mindfulness therapists say, hey, our therapy should be an alternative to cognitive therapy. And so they even combine it like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So their therapy would suggest that what you do instead of challenging the negative thoughts and correcting them is to simply, like you just said, to notice them. Nobody likes me, uh, that, that uh, Dave can't stand me or that he's you know critical. I'm, I, therefore, I suck. I can't do anything right. right. I'm stupid. I, just as a random example. Yeah, I don't know yeah, why I no, latched on that one. Dave snaps at me and then I feel like crap and then I would say, oh, that's interesting. Whenever Dave reacts this way, I internalize that 
there's there's a negative thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, I this is something that I do when this happens. So they're not jumping in and correct the mindfulness thing is not jumping in and calling it negative or attempting to correct it or gather evidence to refute it. It's simply noticing that it's there until it passes. Whereas in the cognitive method, you go the step further and you gather evidence to dispute it. You, you know, but you have to note. You're right. In both types of therapies, you have to notice it to begin with. That's part of homework, actually, in cognitive behavioral therapy, is to make a journal of when you're depressed, what the immediate thought is. And there's been some studies again shown, you know, in the past decade or so. There's groups of people like uh, Siegel or Kabat-Zinn. Uh, the, there's a Toronto group that that have been impressive. They've offered results showing that our, that the mindfulness therapy, cognitive type mindfulness therapy works in a way that's better than treatment as usual or a mm-hmm. placebo sort of effect. But again, the problem is you have to measure it head to head with the Iranian champion. You know, you don't get to call yourself a champion right. unless you take a, is mindfulness superior to cognitive therapy? That hasn't been established yet. Right. One of the areas where this therapy has seemed to have success, right, is it's not curing depression so much as preventing relapse, correct? Well, that's uh, – like I was mentioned before, that's usually where the rubber meets the road in terms of depression treatment is not curing a current episode but preventing a future one. Right. And in fact, some of the studies do show that mindfulness therapy can result in lower rates of relapse, again, compared to other types of – like a standard treatment as usual. So, for example, we had a study here by Helen Ma and John Teasdale. The mindfulness techniques it reduced the relapse – from 78% relapse into depression uh, down to 36%. Wow. In patients with three or more previous episodes. That was an amazing statistic to me that they were able to drop the rate down that much. A similar study um, with Zindel Seagal, they did this over a 60-week period, monitored people, uh, and again, were able to then repeat the results. So this looks pretty promising, you know, leaving a lot of questions open. But there's something weird in the data here. Uh, And both studies found this. The the people who had had many depressive episodes, mindfulness therapy seemed to work for them. People who had not as many, uh, the the effect was not nearly as pronounced. You find that in other types of treatment too, like we talked before about like medication versus therapy. Often it depends on the severity of your depression. If you think of it this way, if you're only are mildly depressed, sometimes calling out the big guns won't result in that much improvement. So in this case, it might be possible that mindfulness doesn't show any particular you know, superiority to the other treatment until you reach a certain level of repetitive relapse. Maybe those people with lots of relapses, I'm just, I don't know if this is what they found, but right. maybe those people who had many relapses had something about them that made them prone to relapse that was related to what mindfulness therapy addresses. Right. Uh, right. Their content of their thought or yeah. something like that. The results were good, but they need to be qualified. I'm very interested in meditation research, and this is one of the things that bothers me. You know, it's 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 very plausible to me again that this this could have real effects. Uh, I I don't really see why not. However, a lot of the people who are doing this research, and even more of the people who are promoting this research, tend to be more of the true believer stripe. You often get this idea from something you'd write, read on, you know, a lot of these alternative medicine sites. Because there's some results that show that it may help in some areas, they treat this as a, as if this is going to be a cure-all. This is like a magic bullet That's here. That's been the story in, in a lot of – in the history of psychotherapy. You know, it wasn't until essentially like, you know, the past maybe 40, 50 years ago that people have actually come up – you know, this is when psychoanalysis back in the 40s and 50s was predominant. It wasn't really until after World War II that some people came out with studies that said, um – doesn't really work. 
you know, or more than placebo. And so every time a new, fa- especially in the 60s and 70s, every time a new fad comes up with, mm-hmm. you know, rebirthing therapy or whatever, yeah. crazy, stuff like that, you know, it. So many people come out of it and say, oh, I'm cured, you know, this and crystal healing and my aura helped. It, it, you need the scientists to come in and do those sorts of unpacking studies to say, why does this work? Does it work superior to what? To placebo? Right. To anybody going to therapy? And so now cognitive therapy is matured to the point where the research really is, we've established that it works, but what about it works? And I think right. that's what my... That's next stage for mindfulness therapy is going to be about that too. And that's another major problem is, is that they're really – they don't know. This decentering idea is of course appealing to anybody who's attracted to Buddhism. But there's no reason why that has to be – that that has to be what's going on. It's, it's still a big mystery when meditation seems to work, why it works. I looked through a bunch of different information I was pulling off the internet and you know you could find little bits here or there. One study by uh, Sarah Lazar at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, they found evidence that uh, meditation was increasing thickness of the cortex involved in areas of attention and sensory processing. That wasn't like building new brain cells or anything else, new neurons or anything. Um, But it was wider blood vessels. A lot of the supporting structures uh, had increased. The branching and the connections between the neurons had increased. And so that gives a plausible idea of, okay, well, maybe it's – because they've noticed this in in musicians. They've noticed this in athletes. When you practice something over and over again, the parts of the brain that correspond to that activity do thicken. So maybe it's just the practice of doing the meditation over and over again that's increasing those areas. So you don't want to know um, whether they have a control get, condition. Like do right. they have breathing, deep breathing and not doing the mental part of right. it? Is it just that you're improving your oxygen flow? You know, is the mental content necessary or is it some other aspect of the of the mindfulness? That that was basically where I was where I was going with that is that you get something about alpha waves here. You get something about the thickening of the cortex there. One of the most thorough books on meditation research is by this guy, Dr. James Austin. Called Stone Cold James Austin? No, no. no. Steve Austin, the six-month-old man. Oh, okay. All right. Who is a neurologist. And, you know, and he found a lot of different connections too bec- between amygdala function and how it relates to fear, parietal lobe, uh, and how that works in, uh, with how you orient yourself in space. Uh, which could lend an explanation to why people feel like they're selfless. You get like little, little bits of data here and there, but but there's no theory really that ties it all together and says, how does this actually work? Uh, sometimes in these types of things, the theory is too dominant where somebody, because they think that it should work for a reason, they go out looking for just that thing. An yeah. example that comes to mind is you guys might have heard of like the uh, the eye movement reprocessing therapy. This is the oh, one yeah. where, you, where for post-traumatic stress disorder where you're asked to uh, you know relive the horrible memories while – of tracking eye movements in various quadrants of right. your space. So you move your eyes up and to the right and think about something. Turns out that it does work and all these books and papers say, oh, you know, when you pair recalling these the memories with the eye movements and, and they had all these theories as to why. It's because eye movements are in the area of your brain that's next to where the memories are being stored. So it's – but uh, the – behavioral therapist just came along and, and did a comparison condition of just exposure where you just think about the thoughts without the eye movements. That is, if you're coming back from Iraq, mm-hmm. you think about your Humvee getting blown up and whatever, and instead of tracking the thing, you just thought about them in the same way. It's another unpacking study. Turns out, same effectiveness. Right. So mm-hmm. the eye movements, again, were just 
window dressing and hand waving that didn't add anything to just dumb old dredging up the memories in a controlled condition and that was what the efficacious part was. So the analogy here I guess I'm making is we have the controlled conditions have to be, you know, sometimes they're looking for certain things because the theory dictates that you are, you know, uh, training the amygdala or whatever the, pr- the mechanism right. in it. You have to have a proper unpacking when you have the different components laid out right. and then compare them. To, to wrap up, there was a study that came out in 2007 by, I think it's Maria Ospina and Kenneth Bond. Uh, they are researchers at the University of Alberta Capital Health Evidence-Based Practice Center in Edmonton, Canada. And they did a meta-study of 813 different studies that purported some sort of health benefit for meditation. And their meta-study just blew it out of the water. Some of the things they were studying were claims that meditation can help with cardiovascular disease, substance abuse prevention, hypertension, that it'll help with chronic pain. It didn't conclude that meditation doesn't help with these things. In fact, they said they reported they found some evidence of reduced heart rate, uh, reduced blood pressure and cholesterol that may contribute to reduced stress. But they said overall, just the quality of the research, uh, the methodology that was being used, adequate controls, it just wasn't there. For And, and they were basically saying what's really needed is a redo of mm-hmm. all of this research. And so to people and sometimes those in the Buddhist camp who are eager to see this as, you know, meditation as a cure-all for everything that ails, the the conclusion is no, the, the data is not there. The data simply doesn't support it. Even some of the things that a lot of skeptics a lot of skeptics will, you know, uh, will grudgingly at sometimes admit it's it's good as a relaxation technique and that can have all sorts of marvelous benefits on the body as a result of relaxing. Even some of that data may not hold up. The Zen in the Brain book quoted another meta-study that purported to show that relaxation wasn't all that much better than just people taking a nap. Which I much prefer. Yeah, which is a lot easier, a lot easier than sitting on a mat a whole hell of a lot. Now, he disputed those findings. He was he was trying to claim that, yes, it's not any different than taking a nap, but that people actually recover from their sleep quicker, uh, become more alert and function. He did quote some data to support that. But yeah, I mean, the take home message is a lot of this stuff is is not confirmed. There are some very promising avenues for research. There's some very intriguing findings, but we are simply not at a point where we can conclude anything about that. And so I have to confess, I feel a little let down. (laughs) I have found that meditation personally, in my own experience, has has seemed to be very beneficial, very a very rich experience for me, and I don't regret uh, having tried it. But some of the stuff on that list, like substance abuse, for example, uh, or chronic pain, I was thinking that was legitimate, and it, you know, it kind of comes to, as a blow to one's ego to go. Well, it could. You be, don't know, but we really don't. We don't have any evidence to support it at this point. Right. Disappointment is what brains do, Jeremy. <laughs> it will pass. I'll just have to let go. It comes and it passes. All right, and we will be wrapping up our discussion on Buddhism. In our next episode, and by the way, those listeners who have said, why are you spending three episodes on Buddhism? I would re- I would refer you back to the 72 episodes we've spent talking about Christianity. And Buddhism 500 <laughs> years older, so there's that That's much right. more stuff we've got to cover here. Yeah.
Well, and of course, Judaism and Islam have been mixed in there too. But yes, uh, well, those who have been salivating for the the takedown of Buddhist doctrines will be happy next week. I think we should call our we should call it call our first episode. Along came Polly. Oh <laughs> wow, that's kind of funny. Wow, it, but uh, only kinda. Um, never gives me credit. We're going to wrap up today with some props. Uh, first. Props to Professor Stephen Hawking. I'm not sure if any of you have heard about this because it's barely been mentioned in the news. Uh, Stephen Hawking. I've been booked all week. (laughs) Oh, God. Um, He does a better voice than I do. I cannot simulate a computer simulator of voices. not, Not as good as Sagan. No, no, no. Um, uh, Stephen Hawking has a new book which is now out. Uh, What's the title of the book? Something about design, which irritates me. uh, Something about more more crazy physics stuff that you won't understand. Yeah, pretty much. But in this book, he says um, very directly that there is no God necessary for there being something rather than nothing. Yep. He says it's not necessary to invoke God to set the universe going. Which uh, Napoleon's astronomer Laplace said hundreds of years ago, sir, I don't need that hypothesis. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so this isn't really anything new. I mean, it's kind of what we've been saying now on 74 well, episodes. Well, it's a little bit new because once we knew that there was an expanding universe. Well, oh, sure. Then we knew that the universe had a beginning and that reignited the cosmological argument. And there are certainly plenty of physicists out there who are trying to stick God into that gap. Right. But but Stephen Hawking is not the first one to come out with this hypothesis. No, no, not at all. Uh, the reason he's on our props list, not only because it is Stephen Hawking and because he's getting a lot of press about this, which opens up the discussion, but he's finally stopped some of the confusing language he used to use. Yeah. Um, what is it? Brief history of time that ends with him talking about knowing the thoughts of God. Yeah, yeah. Always using this mind of God physics, which uh, allowed language. a lot of religious people to claim him, if not definitely in their camp, at least not antagonistic. To yeah, their camp. yeah. Right. It, and it, it his seems to me to be much more of an Einsteinian religion. Oh, where, there's no doubt about you know, it. God He's and nature. Said that. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Flat out that that's how he intended that comment to be made. But it is nonetheless confusing. But at least this time he's saying – he's not saying there is no God. He's not saying God didn't create the universe. He's saying it's not necessary for a God to be part of that equation. Mm -hmm. Can I say one negative thing about Stephen Hawking? Absolutely. Uh, And I know know what I'm doing here. I know all of our listeners who are big into physics and stuff. I know this totally reveals my ignorance – um, but I, I just need to say it anyways. He had this really annoying statement. He said uh, in his book, he wrote that the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And and that kind of thing is the stuff that sets off apologists like William Lane Craig and everybody else saying, look at how ridiculous and logically absurd these naturalists' views are. You know, look at look at the depths of stupidity they have to go to. I cracked open my copy of Universe in a Nutshell. I tried to read up on M theory and, yeah. and see, and it it didn't even seem to me like he was that M theory was predicting that the universe was created out of nothing. It seemed to me like it was saying our universe came out of a multiverse. Right. It's, it's possible. I just don't get it. But to me, statements like that are almost as bad as saying the mind of God 
it's the kind of thing that that doesn't work well in a soundbite. Skeptics Guide, they talked about this a, a bit too and it has something to do with if the universe – if the structure of the universe is is flat, if it's – then it makes sense. It has something to do with stuff we and have no the multiverse idea about. and yada yada yada. <laughs> yeah, he's not necessarily wrong, but I don't. It's just when you're translating it. abstract mathematics and deep physical concepts, just just try to avoid turning them into literal contradictions. Well, they, they refer to like quantum theory all the time, where often like you know that specifies that particles can traverse. Can end up from A to B without traversing the space in between, right, which right. would look like it's being appearing yeah. out of nothing. Yes. So they might use that language as just a condensation to a condescension to uh, to normal speech, where you say things appear out of nothing, but it's part of quantum. Language. All right. I'm just I'm just I'm just expressing my frustration. Right. I, I know there's more to it than that. Fair enough. Well, let's end this episode on a more positive note. On last week's episode, we put CFI on our shit list for their press release about the so-called Ground Zero mosque, which is neither a mosque nor at Ground Zero. Um, it does have a mosque in it. It has a mosque in it to the extent that there's a prayer room. Can we call it the Lower New York Workout uh, Gym with mosque yeah, listener, that's, that's much more accurate. A listener sent us a link to their own website and it said – and it has a fully functioning mosque. Yes, but it's a – I mean – And workout room. Yeah. I mean a prayer room is a mosque. So Well, yeah. You can pray any, any so in any room. So it doesn't make sense to say it doesn't I have a mosque. I can flat down it's a rug right here. Does that make this a mosque? Right. Exactly. Sorry. It's exactly. A, it's, a, it's not a mosque. It's a, it's a public room for prayer. It's, it's a community it's a center. It's not a mosque. All right. Whatever. It's not a mosque. Yeah. You it's can not a keep mosque. on denying it. It's not a mosque. For the God, I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> right now it's a Burlington Coat Factory. But anyway. Be mindful of your rage. I'm noticing it and it's still there. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll dissolve. Just – Keep on watching. We got this letter um, in response. And by the way, I know I was a little bit uh, – well, I was interested to see what listeners would have to say about our stance uh, putting CFI on the shit list. And I don't think we got any negative responses No, to it that. seemed everybody who commented was in agreement with us. Uh, they, they were boneheads. Yeah. But we got a very uh, interesting email about this situation that uh, I thought we should share with everyone. Guys – as a new member of CFI, as well as a person who worked on the 84th floor of Tower 2, losing 61 coworkers in that event, I have to say I fully agree with your assessment. The original press release got a raised eyebrow response from me as it seemed to be a bit aggressive and not the message I think an organization like CFI should be expressing. Do I like the idea of a mosque or cultural center right there? No, of course not. But that doesn't change the fact that they have the right to build that building as long as it's legal, just as any other organization would. Having said that, I also agree that people have the right to open a pulled pork sandwich shop next door to the, <laughs> that place if they feel like it. Or his other suggestion was yeah. a, a gay nightclub. Targeted at, caters, at Muslim men. Caters to Muslim men. Yeah. <laughs> I support religious freedom, gay freedom, as well as barbecue freedom. This is all just silly. Freedom of and from religion. Done. That's all there is to it. So, And that comes from Darren who had a unique perspective on the situation. I, I thought that was an awesome response. I, I, so that's going to do it for us this week. How about my plan for drumming up more listeners by threatening a Bible burning just to get more people to listen? Uh, you know what? We could get some real attention doing that. And then we could call it off. Only if they subscribe to us. <laughs> <laughs> or donate. We won't burn the Bibles, but you have to sign up on iTunes. That's right. <laughs>
Threats of violence are a great way to prove that we are not a violent culture. Anyway, in the meantime, send us your comments, questions, challenges, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. Join the discussion at doubtcast.forummotion.net. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you like the show, we always appreciate it if you write a nice review for us on iTunes. Or best of all, recommend the show to a friend. And we'll be back with more of your Skeptical Guide to Religion here on Reasonable Doubts. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.